Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is Podcast 318. Well, we're in Corinth again. And I want to talk to you today in this podcast about another issue that we wrestle with in the United States of America and in churches around the world where there is a transition from one pastor to another. I think this is especially true in the United States, and that is what happens when a man of God who has a very successful ministry leaves a church and the direction that he was taking the church totally goes another way. It goes south, so to speak. Not change for a good, but change for a bad direction. It's all Often the source of grieving for a pastor who leaves, and he says, my goodness, I thought the people had really bought into the vision. They really understood where we needed to go. They seemed so supportive, and not that anything bad happened that caused a man to leave, but there was just a transition. Maybe a man went on to another church. He felt led to go to another work, or whatever the case is, but everything was going well, and then all of a sudden, it's like that that person had never been there. And having dealt with a lot of pastors through the years and myself seeing this happen, we have been taught that, look, if you train leadership like there needs to be and you get a church going in a direction like it ought to be, then it's always going to go in that, that direction. Well, it's really not the case. I think some of that is seasonal in the sense that a person's there for a season in the life of a church. But this idea of every time a church comes in, there has to be a different direction. I'm not sure that's the case either. So what I want to do is go back to the Corinthian experience that Paul had. As we talked yesterday, the the Apostle Paul had come from Athens. That was not a good experience for him. Honestly, it wasn't. And he doesn't speak of it often. You don't hear much about Athens as far as the real work of God going on there. I think there's a number of reasons for that. One is it was a place that was filled with knowledge and knowledge puffs up especially that which is not clothed in humility. And the more knowledgeable a person is, the more filled with the Spirit of God they have to be in order to operate within an atmosphere of unconditional love. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But uh, the Apostle Paul spent 18 months. Only at Ephesus did he stay longer than he did at Corinth. He stayed 18 months there. He had Aquila, Priscilla, he had Apollos. And as you read 1 Corinthians, you see that uh, it was a divided church. But the fact is, he did a great work there. But when he left, the place fell apart. I mean, he hadn't been gone that long when he had to write back answering questions that the Corinthians were sending to him. Now, here's the interesting thing about 1 Corinthians. It is a series of questions. After some opening remarks, Paul goes right into a rebuke of the Corinthians and that he had heard that they were divided and he believed it because of their cantankerous spirit even when he was there. 
Now he is answering questions that they are sending him after he takes chapters three and four, really, to say to them, you're acting like lost people. You're living like lost people. Now, he says you're dominated by the flesh and you're acting as mere men. In other words, there's no difference between you and all the rest of the heathen at at Corinth. So they began to ask him a series of questions. Now, here's what I want to do to help you to understand what the Apostle Paul wrote and the atmosphere in which he wrote the uh, book of 1 Corinthians. Out of all these questions that they asked that this is what he had heard that they were doing, he answers a series of questions. We'll go through this in just a moment. But listen to me. They were not doing one thing right. Not one. They were not doing one thing right. And whatever it is that Paul spoke to them about, he had to rebuke them. He had to ask them to change. They were doing nothing correctly. They had already fallen apart. Well, Paul is a great teacher. He's a great leader. Well, evidently, after he had been somewhere 18 months, that church fell apart. Many uh, of us who have been in churches and many great men of God that I've known when they've left, the churches have fallen apart. They've gone back to whatever it was they were doing before the person came or a church was started right and then it went astray. And the reason is we're dealing with the sinful human condition and we're dealing with pastors who are sinful and we're dealing with people who are sinful and and people go astray. And I think sometimes our expectation level is just way, way out of kilter and hope deferred makes the heart sick. That means when you've got expectations for something and those expectations, whether realistic or not, when they're not met, then it brings on depression, grief, all of the things that go with that. But you just think about it. They were not doing one thing right. So this is not the book that we need to be quoting as to this is the way to build a church. He starts answering questions in chapter five about when you look at that, it's just absolutely hard to believe that there was such immorality in the church and the people were being, they thought, broad-minded and tolerant and allowing just anything to happen in the church. And the apostle Paul rebuked them for that. Chapter six, they were taking one another to court within the body. This is not for the church at large. Remember the context. It's a local congregation. Does it have application to the body of Christ in a wider case? Yes. When you're a part of a local covenant community, then there is jurisdiction there to exercise discipline. Now, you don't hear about that anymore, but it is a biblical concept. But we don't have the authority to exercise discipline on someone who's not a part of our congregation. We just don't because it doesn't work. What are you going to do? We learn that church discipline happens within a local congregation because that's a local family. That's a local covenant community and they have jurisdiction. So that's what Paul's talking about in chapter six. I hear people say all the time, well, you can't sue so-and-so because he says he's a brother. Well, that's not the way it is at all. Within a local church, there doesn't need to be the suing of one another. Hopefully that something could be done without litigation. But the fact is just because someone claims to be a follower of Jesus and they might belong to a church somewhere in the world, That doesn't mean that you have no recourse from a litigation standpoint. But certainly within a local church, a local community, you would not want to do that. And that's what the Apostle Paul is warning against. He warns against uh, just moral laxity altogether. In chapter 7, he answers questions about marriage, about just a whole lot of interpersonal relationships, uh, marriage and Christian service, marriage and divorce. All of these questions they had then, and they were needing guidance on these, but it's, it's It's evident that they were not handling these in a correct way. 
chapter 8, talking about food offered to idols, and that's an, uh, an entire week of podcast in itself. Then the Apostle Paul deals with decorum in the church and the local assembly. He deals with the Lord's table. They were not doing that correctly. And then chapters 12, 13, and 14 is the longest passage we have in the Word of God on spiritual gifts, on the pneumaticon, the spirituals, the gifting of God. And so chapter 12, it talks about gifts in general. Chapter 13, sandwiched in between these two chapters, deals with the atmosphere in which the gifts operate. And the more gifted a church, the more talented a church, the more money a church has, the more the the atmosphere of unconditional love has to permeate every aspect. Why? Because you've got gifted people and they can be very condescending. You've got people with great abilities and skills and everybody wants to show those things off. And so the Apostle Paul had to deal with that. So in chapter 12, he deals with the spiritual gifts in general. In chapter 14, he deals with uh, gifts in particular, dealing with especially the speaking gifts. And so you've got to remember, again, what is the backdrop? The backdrop is they weren't doing it right. So whatever they were doing at Corinth related to gifts and tongues, it was wrong. It was out of line. And so that's the first thing we need to remember. So this is not what we need to use as a guide if we want to be a spiritual church and operate within spiritual gifts, because there's a lot of things, a lot of parameters that's laid down in here that would stop a lot of people in their tracks. For instance, a woman is not to speak in the church. What's he talking about there? Is he talking about she's not to say hello? No, no. It's talking about specifically in chapter 14, the gift of tongues, the gift of speech. Speaking, the speaking gifts, uh, prophecy gifts, and speaking in tongues. So don't get into the unknown thing because it's not an unknown thing. That's an insertion. The New Testament gift of tongues, there's not several New Testament gifts of tongues. There's one. It's the same gift that was given on the day of Pentecost. And that is the supernatural ability to speak a language, a known language, a spoken language that you've never previously studied. That's what it is clearly in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10. Everywhere it appears in the book of Acts, it is is a supernatural endowment and gifting from God to be able to speak in a foreign language that you have never previously studied, and not only to speak the language, the glossa, but the dialectos, the dialect of the particular people to whom you're speaking. It was a supernatural validation to lost people that indeed this was a supernatural act of God, an invasion from heaven. So whatever they were doing at Corinth, whether it was enthusiasmos or whether it was whatever it was, it was not the supernatural gift of tongues as laid down in the book of Acts if it was some kind of gibberish, uh, because God doesn't give us the gift of gibberish. It's not in the Bible. The supernatural gift of tongues is the ability to be able to speak a foreign language that you've never previously studied, and not just a language, but a dialectos. And so Paul deals with that. And then chapter 15, he deals with the resurrection. It's the longest chapter on the resurrection. They had messed that up. They had gotten totally off on that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you have the clearest delineation of the euangelion of what is the gospel that is given, I believe, in the New Testament where he says in the early verses, dealing with the resurrection, he says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins, that Christ died for our sins, that the Messiah died for our sins, 
according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. It is a clear presentation of what the gospel is. And then he takes off on the resurrection. He likens it to the first fruits. After Passover and unleavened bread, there was the day of first fruits. That started a countdown towards Shavuot and the Feast of Weeks, what we call Pentecost, and on and on. All of that, Paul explains in great detail what the resurrection is, what it is not in 1 Corinthians 15. And then when he comes to chapter 16, he talks to him about how to take a love offering. There's only two kinds of giving in the Bible. There is tithes, and then there are love offerings, free will love offerings. And free will love offerings are those things that are over and above gifts as God has blessed. And so this is what he said. He said, upon the first day of the week when you gather together, let every man lay by in stores. God has blessed him. Now, he's not talking about tithing here. He's talking about a free will love offering over and above. Why? Because this was not for the church. This was to give out Outside the church as a free will love offering designated for the saints in Jerusalem that had undergone famine. And after all, the Gentiles owed a great debt to the Jews because it, without them there would be no gospel. There would be no carrying of the gospel for the first eight to ten years. It was only Jews that were saved that were in the kingdom of God. It was eight to ten years before Cornelius was ever saved. That is when the Gentiles began to be grafted in to this great body of Christ. And so up until that time, uh, it was the Jews that were spreading the gospel all over the world. And so the Apostle Paul said, if we have received spiritual things from them, the least we can do is help them financially. And so that's exactly what Paul was doing. He's taking a love offering. And this wasn't to support the local church there. That's done through tithes. But no, this was done as a free will love offering to offer for the saints in Jerusalem. So he said, if you're going to take a love offering, do it based upon how God's blessed you. And if you have been blessed and, and have extra and overage, then then share that with someone else. So he said, I want you to lay by that every week, not just wait till a special time when you might or might not have it, but lay it back, save for it, plan for a free will love offering. And maybe one day I can do just a, a podcast or two on giving. But let me just say to you, these are the things, the questions that make up the book of 1 Corinthians. But what I want you to understand is Paul had not been gone that long. And they were already messed up. And so getting back to the whole reason for this podcast is he did it differently at Ephesus. He stayed three years, which is not very long. That's a blip on the radar screen of time, three years. But when he left, he left leadership intact. I mean, after all, Timothy was the next real pastor of the church, then Apollos, and then the apostle John at the close of the first century. That is where he was banished from, out onto the Isle of Patmos, where the Roman emperor said, there, we're rid of him. We'll never hear of John again. We put him on the Isle of Patmos. But what the emperor didn't understand is God is everywhere. And God showed up on Patmos and showed John exactly what was going to happen in the future. And so it's an amazing thing. And, and tradition says that Onesimus, the runaway slave of Philemon that was led to trust the Lord Jesus in prison and then sent back to Philemon and was discipled, that Onesimus was the next pastor at Ephesus after the Apostle John. Now, whether that's so or not, that's extra biblical sources, but I'm just saying to you that they had a long run of pastors. But now think about this, just in ending. 
at Ephesus. Who was the last pastor that we have record of? It was John. In the biblical record, it was John. What was John known for? He was the beloved disciple of Jesus, the most trusted disciple of Jesus. He was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's called down through history, the disciple of love. Do you know what the argument was that John wrote back from the Lord Jesus, the rebuke to them? Not that they weren't straight doctrinally, not that they weren't good with church discipline, not that they weren't following the apostles' doctrine, but listen to this, the emphasis of John's life they were failing on. They had left their first love. They had forgotten that the great commandment is not to go make disciples. The great commandment is to love God with the totality of your being. And sometimes we talk more about the great commission than God does. You see, the great commission needs to be fulfilled. But the first and second great commandments before the great commission is to love God with the totality of your being. Love others in a way that will cause them to want to know the God that you know, and then it's easier to make disciples. But I'm telling you, even after John, the most trusted disciple of Jesus, who laid his head on the bosom of Jesus, listen to me, who was known as the disciple of love after he was banished, after all of his great work and all the years there, the number one thing they were lacking was his greatest quality that he had taught them. I'm just telling you, folks, we need to stop grieving over what happens after we leave. We are only responsible for the season that we are there. And when we leave, we leave it in someone else's charge. And from there on, no matter what the people are taught, they're going to do what they need to do to follow God or not. But it gets out of our hands then because we are responsible for the time and season we're there. And we need to train people, disciple people, pass on to other people. But just because we pass it on doesn't mean that we're responsible for their actions. I pray this helps you as you walk on the way. This is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at tonycrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at TonyCRISP.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.